Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verse 11. And as we have been doing the last many weeks, let's read for context from the beginning of the chapter and ask the Lord for his blessing. This is his word. Let all who have ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. But if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, again, we would commit this time to You. This is Your Word. We fear the Lord. We want to rightly divide Your Word. We want to grow in your wonderful, marvelous, superabounding grace. Help us this morning to do that, Lord. Speak to our hearts and change us from within that we may walk with you, that we may bring you praise and glory. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been learning some marvelous truths, haven't we, as we go through Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, again, is uh, a chapter that is the favorite, really, one of the favorites of all Christians out of all of the Bible because it is a wonderful summary of our uh, super invincibility because of Jesus Christ our Lord and the work that He did for us to save our souls. Uh, We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God who was against us is now for us, and because of that, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God ever. This chapter is a chapter that is intended to give great assurance to the people of God, to know that you are saved and to live in the light of that knowledge for the glory of God. And so, what have we learned so far? We've learned that Paul started with there is no condemnation, not even the least bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That prepositional phrase, in Christ, is really the key to the Christian life. To be in Christ is to be united to Him. It is to be a partaker of His life and of His death and of His resurrection. To be in Christ is to no no longer have condemnation. The, The sin that brought condemnation upon us, 
has been averted now because of the work of Christ and because of the work of the Holy Spirit of God connecting us with that wonderful work of Christ. The law or the governing power of the Spirit of life in Christ, verse 2, has made us free from the law of sin and death, from that governing power of sin and death which used to hold absolute sway over us. We are free, brothers and sisters, in Christ to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in holiness. We've been set free from death. We are alive. And Christ came to do what the law could not do because it was weak through us. We were weak because of the weakness of our flesh. We couldn't keep the law of God. His requirement is perfection. That's His standard. The standard is never measured by a horizontal plane, how you compare with others, whether you're better or worse than others. That's irrelevant. The standard is perfection. It's God's own standard. And His Son alone could meet that standard by coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, by being our representative, by taking on flesh and and looking and appearing and living and and being a, a man in every sense, fully human, yet without sin, yet without sin, and living a perfect life so that He could lay down His life as the only qualified sacrifice for the sin of others. He condemns sin in the flesh for us. For this reason, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He didn't come to save us only from our sins and then to transport us to glory one day. He came that we might live a new life in Him, that we might walk in newness of life, that the righteousness of the law, which is His own holiness, justice, and goodness, would be fulfilled, filled up progressively in each one of us through the Spirit of God. And so Paul has been contrasting life in the flesh with life in the Spirit, those who are dead spiritually, those who are alive spiritually. And he has shown us that those who are alive, who are in Christ, who are in the Spirit, these are all synonymous terms, have these characteristics. These are the evidences that you're alive. You walk according to the Spirit of God. You no longer walk according to the flesh. That means that the practice of your life, the general practice and trajectory of your life is obedience to the Lord and holy living. You also know that you're in the Spirit because you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That is your new practice. You are now finding that your mind is bubbling up with thoughts of heaven, that you delight in the things of the Lord, that the Scriptures are your life. You have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. It's the Spirit of God who is that pump, as we discussed really as John Owen pointed out to me, in the heart who continues to cause the thoughts moving upward and against the flow of gravity down to the things of this earth. And, praise God, though our minds were hostile, literally at war with God when we were in the flesh, that is no longer the case. We've been given a new heart and a new mind, a mind that is the mind of Christ, which is subject to the law of God which seeks to obey the law of God completely and is frustrated that it cannot obey 100%. This is the life of the man, woman, and child who are in Christ and in the Spirit. 
Last week, we looked at one additional test in verse 10, which was the new constitution that we have, the the new makeup that believers have as compared to what you were in your old life pre-Christ. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And we discussed how we have an awareness now that our bodies are indeed truly dead because of sin. That we, like Paul, have realized that we were alive once without the law, but when the commandment came with power to our hearts, we, re- we recognized that we were spiritually dead, that we were truly disobedient and breaking God's law constantly, and it slew us in the heart. We were deeply affected and are deeply affected by that truth. We know that we are dead The body is dead. It is a mortal body. It is dying. It is corrupted. It is going to the grave. And you know, as Matthew Henry, the commentator from the 17th century, pointed out, the fact that God allows our bodies to remain under that curse, that they are mortal and dying, is a vestige, is a reminder, a remaining token of God's displeasure against sin. But the good news is, He has made you alive in your spirit. Your body is dead, but the real you is alive. It's incarcerated, if you will, in a body of death, but it's been brought to life. You've been brought to life by the Spirit of God. So we talked about the different understandings of spirit there, whether it's capital S referring to the Holy Spirit or lower S referring to the spirit of the person. And I endeavored to show why I believe that it is the spirit of the person who is shown to be alive because of the righteousness of Christ. Today we have one other test that we want to look at, that we must look at and understand, because this is a key uh, part of our Christian heritage. This is who we are in Christ. And this test is this, in verse 11, you have a new power at work in you. You have a new power at work in you if you are in Christ and if He is in you this morning. And there's really two aspects of that power that I would like to show you today. The first is the nature of the power, the nature of the power, and the second is the purpose of the power. So let's look at this together in verse 11, and I'm praying that the Lord will continue to build on what we've learned and just bring great glory to His name as He opens this truth to our understanding and changes the way we live Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Um, Let's just stop there for a moment. The New King James that I read out of starts with the word but as a conjunction in the spirit. But if the spirit, excuse me. It's the same conjunction that he used in verse 10. And you remember last time we talked about the same word can refer to the word and or but. It's the context that determines the meaning. And we showed that last time there was a contrast with the second half of verse 9, so it makes good sense to say, but if Christ, at the beginning of verse 10. But here at the beginning of verse 11, I would argue that it makes more sense to use the word and, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, because he is building an argument, an argument that he really began in verse 9, to demonstrate if Christ really dwells in you. You are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. He doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, here's what's true of you. Here's the new you. The body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So he's building the argument. And I want you to notice that he uses this conditional phrase, if you are indeed in the Spirit, if Christ is in you, if the Spirit of Him is in you. He wants us to be sure that you are in Christ and to know that He is in you. And secondly, notice how many times he uses the word dwells. He uses dwells four times in three verses here. He wants us to know that we are in the Spirit so that we have assurance of our salvation. Dr. Sproul pointed out that although there's ultimately only two classes of people in the world, and here we saw that as those who are in the flesh or in the Spirit, unsaved or saved, um, he actually divides out four classes, which I found really helpful. He said this. He said, there are those who are unsaved who know that they're not saved. There are those who are saved who are aware and convinced that they are saved. There are those who are saved, but they don't know that they're saved. They lack assurance of salvation. And there are those who are unsaved, but who think that they're saved. They are the deceived. All of these classes can benefit from the truth that we're looking at this morning, but particularly those last two. Those who struggle with knowing that they are in fact saved, And those who are self-deceived, who who think that they're saved but really aren't, and who need to be called to repent and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their righteousness alone. See, the Christian who lacks assurance does not know what God has done for him. That's why we go through what we're doing here in expositing the Word. You are to know what God has done for you. And as you learn that truth, He will change your life. He will bring you to praise Him and thank Him and live a life of thanksgiving that honors Him. The unbeliever who thinks he's saved doesn't believe what God has done for him. He may say that he believes, but truly in his heart he does not believe, and he doesn't evidence it in his life either. But if he does dwell in you, what is true of you? Well, we know that we're no longer in the flesh, but we're in the Spirit because He dwells in us. We know that we have a new constitution Because He dwells in us, that is what is true about us. That's a definition of a Christian. But then, this third truth, we have a new power that dwells in us. Now we're talking about the subjective experience of the Christian. In other words, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, it must of necessity change the way you live. If your life has not changed and yet you profess to know the Lord, you are self-deceived. The Spirit of God is not in you. So that's how the argument builds. And I think that's why verse 11 should really start with the conjunction and. I want you to notice here that Paul gives a new, de- new identification to the Spirit in verse 11. He calls Him the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. Previously, he had identified the Spirit as the Spirit of life in verse 2, who is in union with Christ and also the one who has set us free, who's rescued and delivered us from the ruling power of sin and death. 
In verse 6, he is the mind of the Spirit who is described as life and peace. In verse 9, he is the one who dwells in those who belong to him. But here in verse 11, Paul identifies the Spirit as the Spirit of him of the one who raised Jesus from the dead. So the first natural question would be, well, who is this one he speaks of? Who is the him who raised Jesus from the dead? And if you go back to Romans chapter 6, um, the Scripture always answers the Scripture's questions. That's the analogy of Scripture, and we are being trained in how to compare Scripture with Scripture so that we understand the truth. Romans 6 verse 4 Paul says, therefore we were buried with him through baptism, that is with Christ, into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the, notice this, glory of the Father, that means by the power of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So who raised Christ from the dead? Who is the spirit of him? Well, it's the spirit of the Father. In the, the book of Acts, time and time again, God is attributed with Um, the credit for raising Christ from the dead. Acts 2.32, for example, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. And you see that repeated in Acts chapter 3 and 5 and 10 and 13 and 17, all saying God raised him from the dead. But then don't forget Jesus' own words in John chapter 10 where he said this, Therefore my Father loves me, John 10.17, Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So who raised Jesus from the dead? Was it the Father? Was it the Son? Or was it the Holy Spirit? Yes. The holy God raised Jesus from the dead. Divine power raised Jesus from the dead, not human power. And the emphasis here is on the Spirit raising Christ from the dead in Romans 8.11 because Paul wants to make a key connection for us between the Spirit who raised Jesus and the Spirit who dwells in us. And what is that connection, brothers and sisters? He's the same Spirit. He's the same Spirit. Do you realize that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you this morning, if you belong to Him? Amazing thought. Maybe even more remarkable is, He's not only the same Spirit, but He's the same Spirit of power that raised Jesus from the dead who dwells in you now. We're going to unpack that a little more as we go. I want you to notice next here, Paul repeats the phrase, who raised Jesus from the dead. It almost seems like he's just repeating himself. He says, and if Christ is in you, the body, I'm sorry, in verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Why does he repeat that phrase? He, he has a little variation um, in the Greek. He the first time says, he who raised Jesus The second time, he says, he who raised Christ. But effectively, he's pointing our attention to the one God, the triune God, who raised Jesus from the dead. And he does that, I think, because he is not wanting us to miss this important truth. This is a vital truth, brothers and sisters. 
Pay attention to this verse. Paul is not careless ever with his words. Every word is inspired by the Spirit of God who moved Paul along to write exactly what the Spirit wanted. I want you to notice the slight variation in these two phrases. Why does he say Jesus first and then Christ second? Well, Jesus is the name that refers to his humanity. It's, Jesus is the reference to his full manhood, his humanity. That he was fully man just as we but without sin. And so he's saying the spirit who raised Jesus in his humanity is also going to do something for us in our humanity. And he says he's going to give life to your mortal body. Now, Jesus, it's an interesting question, did Jesus have a mortal body? Jesus was born sinless. What makes a mortal body? Uh, the mortalness, the mortality of our body is due to sin. Our bodies are subject to death and decay because of our sin. We were born with sin from Adam, from the garden. We inherited his sin. Jesus never did. So he did not have a mortal body when he came into this world. He lived a sinless life. He never gave cause for his body to be corrupted because he always obeyed the Father in everything he did, said, and thought. But he took sin, our sin, upon himself. And so his body became mortal for us, subject to death, able to die, and he did, in fact, die. So I want you to see this connection that there is a, a power that God is, has used to raise the mortality of Jesus, his mortal body, that he also is working in us or going to give us in terms of life to our mortal bodies. Secondly, that he raised Christ. Christ is a name that refers to his divinity. That's the name for the anointed one, the Messiah. And I think that this is placed here because God made a promise in the Old Testament through King David in Psalm chapter 16 that he would not allow his anointed one, his holy one, to seek corruption. God made a promise to Messiah and he kept that promise by raising him from the dead. So it follows that all who are in Messiah, who are in Christ, will also be raised from the dead just as he was. So I think those are the general markers that we need to keep in mind as we look at this text. And this, um, this word that he uses for giving life is the word that means to quicken. It means to make alive. It means to invigorate. It's, it's used uh, metaphorically of seeds in gardening when seeds germinate, when they spring up and when they grow. And so Paul is saying, he who raised Christ from the dead will also invigorate, give life to, cause to germinate, spring up, and grow your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. Well, what exactly does Paul mean that the Spirit will give life to your mortal bodies? That's the question. That's kind of the big question for this morning that I, I want us to think about and understand. And as you can imagine, this verse, like many others in the Scriptures, has been badly misused. It's been misinterpreted. Um, I was learning a, a little bit about the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements this week, and many in that movement and in the Word of Faith movement have translated this text wrongly to say that the Spirit will give physical health to your bodies. That's what they say that that's what he's talking about. 
the one who raised Christ from the dead will also give life, physical health to your bodies. In other words, you should never be sick if you are a Christian who has genuine faith. You should always be prospering physically in your health. And of course, they take verses like 3 John chapter 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health even as your soul prospers. And they translate that poorly, wrongly, to say that God is focusing primarily on health. That's not what the Lord's focus is ever. His focus is on spiritual health. I mean, their whole argument breaks down even in this verse in Romans 8.11 because he talks about the mortal body. The body we have is a body subject to decay and to death. Paul is not denying that. We affirm that. Paul has affirmed that. We looked at that last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We don't lose heart. Why? Because even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. Day by day. So, we have a given. The body is given to die. It's under a curse. It's the last vestige of God's displeasure. It will go to the ground and be corrupted for a time. The Spirit, however, has been made new and is growing in grace day by day. That's the encouragement. That's the good news. And that's where we are to keep our focus as we read through the Scriptures. God never promised physical health to His children. We pray for physical health for each other. That's not wrong to do. John is saying, I want you to prosper in your health just as your soul is prospering. That's where the focus is. He's happy that their soul is prospering. May your body's health follow the same track, but the Lord's will be done. Now, so that's an aberrant view. That's a wrong view of this text that somehow God is promising physical health to the body with this life that he's giving to our mortal body. But within Orthodox Christianity, there are two primary views of what this text means. The most popular view, the the most commonly translated view, is a view of glorification, is a view of a bodily resurrection. They read verse 11 and they say, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you at the last day, at the resurrection of the dead. That's what he's talking about, is, is what they say. And of course, it's easy to see that because Paul uses a future tense when he says, we'll also give life future to your mortal bodies. Well, when does that point to, Paul? And they say the last day. And it seems to be the most natural view at face value. The other view, and the the one that I found to be really grossly underemphasized, is the view that John Calvin held. And he viewed this verse as applying to our sanctification. As, a, as applying to the strength that we need to live the Christian life here and now. Listen to what Calvin said as he commented on this verse. This is a quote. By mortal bodies, he, Paul, understands all those things which still remain in us that are subject to death. For his usual practice is to give this name to the grosser part of us. We hence conclude that he speaks not of the last resurrection, which shall be in a moment, but of the continued working of the Spirit, by which he gradually mortifies the relics of the flesh and renews in us a celestial life. So that's position two. This applies not to the glorification at the end, but to our sanctification now. And Lloyd-Jones, whom I love and reference often here, as you know, 
um, he actually took issue with John Calvin's position and felt like that was incorrect because Paul would just be repeating himself unnecessarily. He's been talking about sanctification quite a bit um, in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Why is he talking about sanctification again in that verse? And he also felt like there's a climax, a crescendo that's missed if you don't understand verse 11 to be pointing to a final glorification. Um, and again, it's, it's just look at the flow from 9 to 11. You are in Christ if He is in you, and if He is in you, your spirit is alive. You've come to life spiritually, although you're incarcerated in this body of death. But don't worry, one day He is going to make you alive bodily and redeem you soul and body for a complete salvation. And, and so that's why Lloyd-Jones took issue with Calvin on his sanctification view. Um, I think that they're both right to some extent. I actually, my personal view on this is I believe that this applies both to present sanctification and to the final glorification that is to come, and that it's wrong to um, assign a meaning only to one or the other of those. I believe that this applies to all of our salvation, and as we say regularly, our salvation is to be thought of as a spectrum. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. So I think that it applies to all of our, sancti- or all of our salvation, and I really want to show you why this morning. First is, it, let's consider the immediate context of Romans 8 and the first 16 verses We're in verse 11, but all the way up to verse 16, Paul is talking largely about sanctification. That is the context. Um, He's going to talk about our glorification, but he doesn't start that until verse 17, and that runs till verse 25. So to say that the text has no application in sanctification just doesn't seem to fit the context first off the bat to me. Um, We've learned so far that um, Christ has... Uh, the Spirit has rescued us, that Christ has died for us so that we should walk in newness of life. Um, there's a focus. God cares about how we live in this world now, and He wants us to know that. Um, we come to verse 10, and we understand that we have a new constitution. We are uh, dead in the body, or as good as dead in the body, and yet we have been brought spiritually to life We know that because we believe the message of the gospel. That evidence is that we've been brought to life. And then there's this further blessing here. If Christ is in you, in verse 11, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. Now, again, that is a future tense. It's a reference to the future, but there's no reference to specific time that's given. So this really, in other words, can be understood as a promise, He will most certainly also give life to your mortal bodies by His Spirit who dwells in you. You see that? This is a promise. And He will continue to do so for the rest of your time in the body on this earth. So in that sense, the promise is also future, yes. Why is that so significant? Because you have to remember, the body is dead because of sin. And when we were in chapter 7... We learned about this vicious cycle that we were not able to break in, a, in, in and of, of ourselves, excuse me, which was really chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work, were energized in our members, that is the various parts of our bodies, to bear fruit to death. 
that everything that we did was only producing more sin and death because sin was at work like a machine in us producing sin and actually even using the good, holy, just law of God as a a lever, as a fulcrum to carry out its own nefarious purposes to produce more sin in us. That was a pattern that we could not break when we were in the flesh. But now that we're in the Spirit, that pattern has been broken. You no longer have to obey the flesh. You no longer have to produce fruit to death. In fact, look at verse 4 in chapter 7. My brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. To whom? To him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. There's the new pattern. You are now able and are, you must bear fruit to God. And you're able to do that because now you're in union with Christ. You're wedded to him. He is going to bear his fruit through you. So this is very significant because the body is dead, but now because of your union with Christ, the vicious cycle has been broken. Brothers and sisters, what does that mean practically? Remember, the body is comprised of members. The members are things like your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet, but also includes your mind, your affections, your desires, the various components of you. Sin dwelling in us uses the body and all its members as channels to express itself, its sin. When we were in the flesh, our minds used to be hostile to God. Now, they're subject to the law of God. They're life and peace the mind. Your eyes used to be full of adultery. They couldn't cease from sinning. Now, we say with the psalmist, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way, O Lord. Your ears were itching before when you were in the flesh. They were desiring to hear only those things that tickled you and suited your own lusts. But now, Your ear has been opened to the truth of the word, and your ear seeks knowledge. Your mouth was full of cursing and bitterness, but now the word says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is useful to the edifying of another, that you may impart grace to the hearer. Your tongue, it used to practice deceit, but now it's used to bless God and bless men, to speak the truth, to praise his name, to sing his song. Your hands used to steal and touch what is unclean, but now you are to work with your hands that which is good so that you may have something to give to another. And you have been called out and separated from those you used to dwell among. You no longer touch what is unclean. That's the call of the Christian. Your feet were swift to shed blood and walk in the path of destruction, but now how do we walk? According to the Spirit following the steps of Christ in a path of suffering for His name's sake. Brothers and sisters, you are transformed and are being transformed. Your members are now instruments of righteousness for God, no longer to be used as weapons for sin's purposes. Here's how you would say it in the, Roman, the language of Romans 8.11. He will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He's talking about holiness now. 
it matters. Now, if you look at how the context continues in Romans 8, 12, and 13, um, he says this, Therefore, brethren, so knowing what we know coming into verse 11, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you think God cares about how we live now? Absolutely. And here is the power of the Spirit to help you live in accordance with His Word. We're going to exposit that later. But I just wanted to point out the, the context that sandwiches what we're talking about is all about sanctification. So I think there's a strong argument from this immediate context alone that we are to understand verse 11 as pertaining to our sanctification. Secondly, if we look broader at the context of the letter and even at the context of the, of the New Testament, it really bears out the same testimony. Come back with me to Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 12. Romans 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments, literally weapons, of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And when we went through those texts, we learned that we are to reckon these things to be true, conclude that these things are to be true. We are to believe the truth that if Death has no dominion over Christ, and we died with Christ, then death no longer has dominion over us. Therefore, live in the power of the Spirit in obedience to Him. Do not obey sin any longer. But here, now that we are in chapter 8, Paul is really filling in the picture for us to show us that there is a mechanism by which we are able to live this way, and He is called the Spirit of life in you. It's the Spirit who is at work in you with a power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, who is enabling you to live for His glory. Look at um, Ephesians chapter 1 with me. This was our call to worship this morning. And Ephesians 1 uh, is... It's so rich. Pastor Stan has been taking us through Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 3 in that study right now, but um, wonderful truths have been gleaned from this section. So I'm just going to review and recap a couple things that we've already learned. Uh, look at Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks to, for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know, hold on to that word, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So, Paul is talking here about the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul is saying, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness, verse 19, of his power. The word he uses for greatness is the word megathos. It's the word for, that's derived from mega in Greek. It means enormous, great, grand, large. And he puts the word exceeding before that, which is the word that means to go way beyond a marked limit. So he's saying, I want you to know the exceedingly abundant mega power that is working in you who believe, that is toward you who believe. This is the power of God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the magnitude of that power? How do we understand something of the, the size of this power? Well, this is a heavenly power that he's describing. This is a power that is able to raise Jesus from the dead. And not only that, but then to exalt him to the highest heaven and seat him at the right hand of the Father. Now, oftentimes we think of that as a physical location. Jesus is seated physically at the right hand of the Father. But actually, the right hand in Scripture speaks of power, strength. What Paul is saying here is not so much physical location, but that Christ was raised and seated with the full power and strength of the Father. Christ has been given the full power to reign over all of heaven and earth. And in verse 21 he says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. His power excels by orders of magnitude every other power that has been established in heaven or in earth. It's a power that overcomes death. It's a power that can raise Christ to the highest heaven. That's the power that he wants us to understand, that he wants us to know how in our daily walk in our sanctification. This is present tense. This is a power that He wants us to know. It's so interesting reading this. He doesn't pray, I want you to receive this power. This is not some extra power that you get after you've become a Christian. This is a power that was invested in you from the time you were regenerated, when the Spirit of God came to live in you. No, he doesn't say, I pray that you would receive power, but that you would know it. He uses the Greek word "etho," which means to perceive it. That you would just understand the exceeding greatness of the power that's already there in you. Because that is what's required to appropriate it. You need to know that it's there and to look to him for it. Brothers and sisters, that's the power that's at work in you this morning if Christ dwells in you. That's why Paul said, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. It is a statement of fact. It's yours and he will continue to give it to you. It's his promise. And just to take this one step further, listen to this insight again from our brother John Calvin. He said this, since by the power of God's spirit Christ was raised, and since the spirit possesses eternal power, he will also exert the same with regard to us. And he takes it as granted, as given, 
that in the person of Christ was exhibited a specimen of the power which belongs to the whole body of the church. That is remarkable to me. The power that raised Jesus from the dead and that exalted him to the highest heaven is only a specimen. It's a sample of the infinite power of God. Do we realize this, saints, that this power of God is at work in us? How often do we live truly like paupers, like, like impoverished people inside of the king's house? No, the, the Lord wants us to know that we have a great power that is available to us and that he has appropriated for us. This is this resurrection power. It's a heavenly power. It overcomes death, not just once, but forever. Jesus rose never to die again. You will rise one day never to die again. This is the infinite power of God that is at work in you. So, first, that's, we looked at the nature of the power. I want you to see now the purpose of this power. Those who are not spirit-filled get itching ears when they hear about great power available, right? Like Simon Magus, the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. He wanted to buy that power because he was a lustful man. He was just hungry for power and for the praise of men. No, what is this power for that God has given to the church and to each one of us as members of the church? Beloved, in short, it is for your salvation. That's the reason you have the power. Let's revisit Romans 1.16 now in our thinking with regard to this. For I am not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel is good news. It is the message of the person and work of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is applied to the hearts of God's people by the Holy Spirit of God. And this gospel is backed by the full force, authority, and power of heaven to save everyone who believes. This power is for your salvation. Listen to how Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, God's divine power has given us all things that pertain to, that are toward life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. This power of God has been given us for life and godliness. Everything that is needed to live the Christian life you have because the spirit of power dwells in you giving life to your mortal body now. Here's another way to think about this. Rather than only thinking about the power as available or potential power for us in our salvation, I want us to consider that this was the magnitude of power required in order to save us. In other words, nothing less than the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is required to save a person. That's a very significant thing to think about. You were not just a little bit lost or misguided, loved ones, when you were without Christ. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the course of this world. You were children of the devil you were enemies of God who had no interest in the things of God. You were living for yourselves, for your own pleasures and passions. 
and you would have until God, unless God had arrested you and brought you to himself, brought you to life. He called you out of the tomb, just like Jesus called Lazarus, to come forth. And you did, spiritually. You responded to the voice of your shepherd. You were regenerated. He gave you life through the Spirit and the righteousness of Christ. In other words, your regeneration required nothing short of the resurrection power of God. The song we sang this morning, Oh Great God, I love these lyrics. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your Spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, through the gospel of your Son gave me endless hope and peace. That's it. Now that you are alive, He is at work in you. His power is at work in you, and His power has not stopped. He's regenerated you, but now He is sanctifying you. Now He's separating you more and more from your sin. How does He do that? Well, He's putting you and me through various trials, right? Fiery trials that test our faith. He chastens us. He corrects us as a father when we sin so that we know that He's our Father, in fact, and that we are legitimate sons. And though He brings great pressure to bear upon our souls when He corrects us, He's also the one who sustains us in those trials as He purges our sin and He makes us more like His Son. He's letting us know that He is holding us up under the pressure that He is bringing to bear on us as He squeezes out the sin in our, in our lives. He's purposefully engaging us daily in a war, isn't He? Against this world, against the devil, and against your own flesh, which wars against the Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit in you. Why? Why does He do that? He's a loving Father. So that you would be desperate for Him every single day throughout the day, that you would call on the name of the Lord for salvation so that you would know Him as Savior, not only as Creator, but as Savior. And as He delivers you, He proves that His great power is being perfected in your weakness. He wants all to know that it's the Lord who is the mighty warrior who fights for His people and who wins the victory. He alone gets the praise and the glory, doesn't He? And as He leads you through the wilderness of this life, day and night like He did with Israel. He's protecting your soul and your spirit from thousands of snares and pitfalls, causing you to walk in His way, in the path of faith, picking you up when you fall, leading you all the way to the promised land, which is on the other side of that shore. Your sanctification, in other words, requires nothing short of the resurrection power of God. If your salvation were up to you, you would abandon the faith. You would not stay the course. The Lord will make sure that you stay the course because He is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. And then one day after your body returns to the dust, that's not the end of the story. 
Praise God. He will raise you from the dead bodily in your final glorification. By the same power that raised Christ bodily from the dead. Why? In order to complete his great salvation that he began in you. He never begins a project that he doesn't finish. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the firstfruits. He is the forerunner for those who come behind him. And that's us. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. If he rose bodily, we will rise bodily. We were sown in corruption. We will be raised incorruptible. What is mortal now will put on immortality. And the prophets all bear testimony to the same thing. Job, he said, after my, sin, my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. David, Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Isaiah 26, verse 19, Your dead shall live. Together with my body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And then Paul's own testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, this body of humiliation, a body of weakness, that it, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You know what kind of power it's going to require to change your present body and even your corrupted, decayed, dead body to make it glorious like his? The same power that's required, that was required and is required for all things to be subdued under the feet of Christ. Amazing. Your glorification requires nothing short of the resurrection power of God. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're seeing Romans 8.11 is not only about a future glorification. It's also not only about a present sanctification. I believe that misses the fundamental argument. I think Paul is saying the power of God is at work in you to accomplish your entire redemption. All of it. Your body is dead, but you've been made alive in your spirit. You've been regenerated. That means he's already given life to your mortal body. Verse 10. That's how that's already played out. If you are alive this morning, he's already given life to your mortal body through his spirit who is in you. And now as a new creation in Christ, the spirit is at work giving life to your mortal body to transform the way you live now. That's your sanctification, holy living. And if you see that he is at work in you now, then know for certain that you will be raised from the dead bodily at the end. Take heart. That's your assurance. Great confidence in the Lord's salvation, past, present, and future. I think it's a shame that many commentators 
seem to have missed the glory of the application of this text to our present sanctification. It's not just our initial regeneration and our final glorification that need this power, but our sanctification now requires that power. God is preeminently concerned with one thing. You know what that is? His holy name. He is concerned for His holy name. There are many who call on the name of the Lord who do not know Him, who are not, in fact, regenerated people, and they profess His, they, excuse me, they profane His name with their lawless living because they don't know Him, yet they claim to know Him. They give Him a bad reputation. So the Lord, as part of His plan of redemption, brings glory to Himself in this way. He sanctifies His great name through us by changing us, by transforming us from within. He hallows Himself in His people so that the the nations who are watching us would know that God has worked in us, that God can take a, a weak vessel like us and transform us to be something beautiful and useful in His service. Marvelous truth. And that brings great glory to the name of the Lord Our sanctification matters, and there's great power that's required to accomplish that. No one can accomplish that in his own strength. You are not a Christian just because you decide to be a Christian fundamentally. Yes, all true Christians make a volitional decision of the will to decide to follow Jesus, and that's right and good. But the precursor to that decision is a work of grace that happens in the heart. The Lord must work to bring you to life. He must work to sanctify you and to sustain you all the way to the end, to make you more like His Son progressively, and then finally one day to redeem your body. Being a Christian is truly the miracle of God, and He's doing that miracle daily. I want to close with Psalm 121 because one other question that you might be asking in all of this discussion is, How is it that we appropriate this power? We have great power available to us. Um, We need to know that. How do we appropriate that power? Well, certainly the text in Romans 8 says that God will give life to your mortal body. So we know fundamentally He's going to do this in His people. But what's the mechanism? How does it happen for us in space and time in our practice? Psalm 121, I think, is an answer there. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence, from where comes my help. This is a psalm of a sense. Psalm 120, um, starting in 120, I believe through 132, if I'm not mistaken, are all songs of a sense. As Israel would come for the three required feasts each year, they were climbing up to Jerusalem. They were ascending the mountain. As they're ascending, anticipating, worshiping in Jerusalem, the people say this, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Where is our help from, brothers and sisters? Above. Heaven. It's heaven's power. We have this great power within us, and yet we are called to look up to him. He's our help. Now look at this, verse 3. He will not allow your foot to be moved. That means He will not allow you ultimately to fall. 
He's established you. He's planted you. He who keeps you will not slumber. He's not like the pagan gods who take naps and who go on vacation. He doesn't rest in that sense from watching his people carefully, caring for his people. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. He is your protector. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Day or night, he is your shield, your protector. The Lord shall preserve you from all, now my version says evil. The word is calamity. And you know what that calamity is? What is it that the Lord preserves us from? Does he preserve us from disease and sickness in the physical body? Look what he says. He shall preserve your soul. That's his focus. He is preserving your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in your whole life, whether you're going out to your business or you're coming home at night, from this time forth and even forevermore. Present sanctification, future glorification. He is working to protect you and keep you and guard you by the power of his Spirit. And nothing will ever change that. How do we appropriate the power? Look to Him. Very simple. Look up to Him. How do we do that practically? You look at His Word. You spend much time reading, meditating, and praying over His Word. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Not on things of the earth below where the body dwells. But set your minds above where your true identity is found, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And there you will find great strength for today to deal with the battles that God has engaged us in, that we might bring Him glory. I pray that these things would be so for each one of us today and this week forward. Let's pray together. Oh, our great Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for teaching us about the work that you have done in our great salvation. This is your salvation, Lord. Every component of it is of you. Salvation is of the Lord. An eternal salvation that you have purposed in your mind even from eternity before anything was created. A salvation that was executed faithfully and perfectly by your Son, the Lord Jesus, when he humbled himself and came and lived a perfect life in order to lay down his life as a substitute for sinners, for his people. And then you showed your acceptance of his sacrifice by raising him from the dead and raising him all the way to the highest heaven, glorifying him, giving him the glory that he had with you before the world was, and now as Redeemer, Redeemer, who prays for us, who watches and cares for us and who protects us from every true evil. Father, thank you for caring for our souls. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for pointing us to the truth and causing us to walk in your way. Help us, Lord, to encourage each other in these things. Help us, Lord, to teach others the good news of your salvation and what you have done. May we revel in these things. May we think on them and give our time to them because it is in the contemplation of your word that you change us. Thank you for the brothers and sisters here. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.